Pastor Bevan. Good evening, everybody. So amazing to be here. Um, give honor to Pastor Bevan and Pastor Zoe, the beautiful, amazing pastors of rebirth. Let me tell you something. If I wasn't a pastor at Rhema, I'd want to be a pastor, not pastor. I want to be a member of rebirth. I love this church so much. Uh, you guys are incredible. I, I said this when I spoke at the men's um, uh, event a couple months ago. You know how much God loves a church by the pastor he gives them. This man is something else. I fell in love with him instantly. And uh, yeah, I'll, 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 there's, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. Both of you, you're absolutely amazing. I don't know if you've ever been to an event they host. Uh, Pastor Zoe's hospitality gift is off the chain. If you think you've got a gift in hospitality, you haven't seen a gift in hospitality until you've seen this lady operate. Incredible. Also, my friend, the Pastor Clint and his wife, Bernice, thank you for being such great friends through all the years, the consistency. Uh, in his absence, Pastor Israel Piri. Uh, John the Baptist said that he that comes after me is greater than me. That's, that's how I feel. Um, Pastor Herschel, Pastor Pitts, some of the pastors I've met here, uh, thank you so much for being here. All you've helped me do is feel a little more intimidated. Um, but um, please don't stop my clock now. It is running time. I've got a stopwatch on here, so I'll tell you when we can start the clock. Um, I also want to acknowledge people. I've seen a few, few faces from Rhema. Um, um, I just want to say thank you for coming. Uh, Nightingale, thank you so much for being here. Um, also, um, my brother uh, and his wife, would you guys please stand? Uh, Preston my, and his wife, Eloise. My life is uh, absolutely richer because of those two people. Um, Pastor Bevan said, I'm no stranger to pain. I think most of us here have been through stuff. But you, you, um, you really know who loves you when they're there for you, when there's nothing they can get from you. So when people love you in the bad times that you know, all right, we've got keepers. And I have that in, um, yes, he's my brother, but he's also probably the best friend I have in the world. Um, him and Eloise, so thank you so much. All right, time to get into the word. Let me just warn you before we get the clock going. <laughs> um, Pastor... Bevan was very direct concerning the assignment tonight. Uh, when he called me, he said, this is the topic from Hebrews 12. And he said, this is what I want. I want an expository sermon. No pressure, right? I want an expository sermon. Uh, and you can, you, know, you can touch on a few things here, line by line, and whatever the case may be. And I thought, yeesh, all right. 
um, if you don't know, for the average church today, ministers, and there's nothing wrong with it, but most pastors are topical preachers. Nothing wrong with that. But I believe that the greatest form of preaching is expository preaching. Where you are led and guided by the text. The best preaching, the best preaching is pastors who preach through books. I've got favorite topics. The pastors here all got favorite topics. And your, the problem is that you'll probably go there most. <laughs> when you preach through books, you have to touch stuff you don't like. And so uh, for you young aspiring would-be preachers, becoming become an expositor and so I'm gonna that's my preference as well all right we can start the clock I've got a stopwatch and it's kicking down all right before we go anywhere I want to also say that we have, have a lot a lot of slides a lot of uh, scripture uh, those of you that are part of rebirth won't mind that um, but for the rest of you this is gonna be a little different lots of scripture before we start, I want to say something about law and gospel. Law and gospel. If I had a whiteboard up here, I would show you on the one side, let's say the left side, you've got an Old Testament. Amen, someone. You guys got to speak to me. On the right, we have in our Bibles a New Testament. The Old Testament is filled with law. The New Testament is filled with gospel. The, the, the Old Testament law will tell you what to do. It'll tell you, uh, it'll speak to you about your sin, things that you need to do. Uh, let's say if something's wrong in your life, you're struggling in an area. It'll address it, but the law doesn't have inherent in it the power needed for you to change. Only the gospel has. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Grace and love are central to the gospel. Central. Uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, just want to touch this quickly. Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached, which I received, in which I stand, by which you are saved. He says, this is the gospel. Yeah. And then he says, I deliver unto you that Christ first, uh, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again, according to the scriptures. He says, this is the gospel. Yeah. Scripture defines what the gospel is. He's the death, burial, resurrection. He says, that's the gospel. Yeah. Now, in the death, we have the substitutionary death atonement I'm guilty you guilty and Jesus dies for us but he not only dies he's buried and he's raised to life again and he says this is the gospel so if you take a verse like John 3 16 for God so loved the world if you understand that love then is the motive of the gospel 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. You're going to have everlasting life. Here's the issue. You're not going to perish. Grace is bestowed on you is what comes next. Love and grace. So if love is the motive of the gospel, grace is the manifestation of the gospel, how it is we experience it. So if I could give you, if I, if I could give you an equation, simple terms, love plus grace equals gospel. I need us to be on the same page about what gospel is because we're going to come back to it. In Hebrews 12, he makes a distinction between law and gospel. All right? And so we, we, I wanted us to be on the same page and label that so that, yeah, we can go on. So as far as, we, as, far as the scripture goes, uh, when it comes to gospel, we used to, I used to always think that the gospel is what you give a new believer when he's to get him born again. But, the, but grace is not just the ABCs of the gospel. It is the A to Z of the gospel. I, I, I know I didn't say Z, but that doesn't rhyme. Okay. So what happens is, is that God ultimately moves us. He doesn't take you out of the the grace of God and out of the gospel what he does is as you mature he moves you deeper into the gospel yeah. at no point do you outgrow your need for the gospel yeah. ever all right slide number one where am I all right okay um, the scripture in the book of Hebrews this Hebrews is written first of all I need to give you some context is is uh, a, written to a second generation bunch of believers. These are Jewish Christians and uh, they have a strong Greek and Hellenistic uh, um, and when I say Hellenistic it means they have Greek influence and uh, the writer of Hebrews, I, I firstly also don't believe that Paul wrote it. I might differ from some of the pastors in here, no problem, no issue. But there's so much to do with the style and how it is he writes that some of the best scholars of our time and, and through church history said the one who wrote Hebrews, God knows best. And I prefer to just leave it like that. So he, he, he mentions two purposes, to encourage Christians to endure and persevere and face the, uh, those that are facing tremendous attack and then secondly, to warn them not to abandon their faith in Christ and reject those old Jewish teachers. So what was happening was that that church, the, the bunch of believers in the Hebrew, in that, in that society, what they were doing was a lot of them came to Christ, first generation, but then the Jews, <laughs> you got to love them, what they were doing was saying, listen, this Jesus guy you're following, something's wrong. He's, this is not right, you've got to go back, you know. Uh, uh, and they, they started going through a whole bunch of things. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see they bring up angels, they bring up Moses, they bring up 
all these people and we'll touch a little bit on it and the reason why they do is because they want to show that these people including including Melchizedek including the angels are better than Christ and so they started uh, uh, persecuting they started persecuting these Jewish Christians um, at the time Nero was in power and let me say he had his if you know anything about history he did begin persecuting Christians quite early on but in but in the book of Hebrews it's not Rome that persecutes Christians it's the Jews that persecute Christians and so uh, let me take you are we on slide two let me just make sure we're in the right place right okay so what what it is we know about what what is we know about our audience here in the book of Hebrews is that first of all they're Jewish I said already they're Hellenistic which means they've got this uh, Greek influence they were immature we know that about it about them in Hebrews chapter 5 uh, the writer says at this time that you ought to be teachers you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word they were persecuted I've mentioned that already and they were near apostasy that they were on the verge of turning their backs on Jesus and walking away going back to the old uh, Jewish culture that they came out of couple of things to note is that uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 he talks about the superiority of Christ one of the key words in the book of Hebrews is better. Jesus is better than the angels, better than uh, the temple, better than Moses. Um, and that's a major thing in the book of Hebrews. One of the things he does when you get to chapter 7 is that he talks about this person called Melchizedek. This priest without uh, beginning or end, uh, without genealogy, and many people say that he was a type of Christ and what they were doing was teaching that Melchizedek is more important more powerful than this new Jewish teacher that you guys are following leave him and come back to Judaism let me say this was a sect of Judaism that was teaching the wrong thing so there was heresy all over the place slide three and so in the book there are multiple warnings given I need to lay this down because it's going to help us as we go on six warnings given to this Hebrew sect right number one uh, they were warned against drifting from what they had heard it's the danger of neglect they were also warned about disbelieving the voice of God in chapter 3 and 4 they were warned about degenerating from the elementary teachings of Christ this was the danger of not maturing and let me say it's got a lot to do with where we are I know a lot of Christians that walk in and out of church have been there for years and are still not mature uh, the fourth was a warning against despising the knowledge of the truth drawing back the fifth one was devaluating, devaluing the grace of God. And the sixth warning, that was in chapter 12, which we're going to get to, 
was a warning against departing from him who was speaking the danger of refusing God so what we've got is chapters 1 through 10 are doctrinal hang with me <laughs> but chapters 11 12 and 13 are practical about the practical living um, for Christians that are going through persecution uh, I'm going to speak to you about uh, the Christian life as a marathon and that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, I'm not going to go verse by verse but I will touch on a few things the danger here is to get caught up in the trees and miss you know you get up caught up in the forest and miss the trees right and uh, and so I want to remain cognizant of my assignment and get to the unshakable kingdom if you want to know what it is my outline looks like then slide four should have it that's what my sermon's gonna look like okay expositor breakdown uh, <laughs> number one the origins of the marathon number two the obstacles of the marathon and then lastly the outcome of the marathon okay if pastor Bevan is happy with me after this uh, I'm gonna be a happy boy all right uh, I, I, I'm going to try and skip over this. I don't want to read chapter um, 12 without reading, and I'm going to ask you to actually go and check the tail part, the tail end of Hebrews chapter 11. We all know what chapter 11 is all about. Uh, these heroes of faith, right? Uh, but it talks about uh, uh, David, Samuel, and the prophets who subdued kingdoms, worked righteous, obtained the promises, stopped the mouths of lions, uh, a whole bunch of things. Slide six, um, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, de uh, de uh, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And he goes on and on, talking about how these oaks were sawn apart, verse 37, slain, all the kind of persecution that they go, go through. In slide 7, he talks about all of them doing this and not receiving the promise. Are we tracking? Okay. And the issue here is that Hebrews chapter 11 gives us examples of faith and what faith looks like when people are discouraged. And these people that persevere. I said this the other day, uh, Minister last Sunday uh, that there's a difference between perseverance and endurance let me say that again there's a difference between perseverance and endurance when you call to endure endurance is static just hold on but perseverance says take another step going don't give up when it gets hard amen and so these heroes worshiped worked walked wandered waited wed wailed warred by faith oh my goodness and i am thank you sir all right so uh, the implication is thank you thank you so much is that 
they, some of them could have been delivered, but they chose not to, and they chose rather to be tortured than to accept deliverance on discount. To be compromised. Slide 8. Dr. John Patrick said, pain makes people think. Thoughts make people wise. Wisdom makes life endurable. So one of the most repetitive themes in chapters 1 through 10 is don't go back to the past. Don't go back to the past just because you are persecuted. The grace life will empower you to remain faithful to the end. Praise God for that. Alright, so let me confirm that with a few scriptures. Slide 9. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 through 35 in the CEB. It says, but remember the earlier days. After you saw the light, you stood your ground while you were suffering from an enormous amount of pressure. Sometimes you were exposed to insults and abuse in public. Other times, you became partners with those who, treated, who were treated that way. You, you, you even showed sympathy towards people in prison and accepted the confiscation of your possessions with joy. Since you knew that you were better, that you had a better and lasting possessions. So, so don't throw away your confidence. It brings great reward. It brings great reward. Okay? So, so don't throw away your confidence. Slide 10. Verse 36 in the Amplified says, For you have need of patient endurance. Amen, someone. To bear up under difficult circumstance without compromising. So that when you've carried out the will of God, you may receive and enjoy the full of what is promised. Oh, this is... I, I'm not a fan of the message because it's a paraphrase. But this was beautiful. It says, remember those early days after you first saw the light? You remember? Those were the hard times. Kicked around, in, uh, kicked around in public. Targets of every kind of abuse. Some days it was you. Other days it was your friends. If some people went to prison, you stuck with them. If some enemies broke in and seized your goods, you let them go with a smile. Knowing they couldn't touch your real treasure. Nothing they did bothered you. Nothing set you back. So don't throw it all away now. You are sure of yourself then. It's still a sure thing. But you need to stick it out. <laughs> Stay with God's plan so you will be there for the promised completion. Here's, a, here's my question to you. What is it going to take for you to take your, turn your back on Jesus? What would it take for you to say, I'm done with this Christian thing? To walk away from Christ. What will it take? Somebody putting a gun to a child's head? If you don't turn, I'll kill him. Kill her. What will it take to turn your back on Jesus? 
And let me say, we, and, and, and just for a sec here, I want to talk about fears quickly because it's one of the great obstacles when we go through persecution. What we fear will affect our walk, how we walk, where we walk, and even if we walk at all. The group of Jewish believers lived in fear. And that's a massive obstacle. We live with fears all the time and we don't see it. We live in a photoshopped world. <laughs> and there's filters for your pics. Because we want to be accepted. <laughs> These fears will inevitably show up as what your idols are and what idols it is you worship. Because we idolize love and acceptance and approval, conversely, we fear rejection and persecution. When a culture idolizes approval and acceptance, it can create idols and we don't even realize we worship them. You and I were created to worship and we need love and we need acceptance. I'm not knocking that. We all live lives of service to those things we ascribe ultimate worth to. That we attribute and ascribe the ultimate worth to and whatever it is, to that end we'll pursue it to the point it becomes an idol. What we end up worshipping, believe it or not, is very closely related to what it is we fear. So your greatest fear, so if, if your greatest fear is rejection, you'll worship approval. If your greatest fear is uncertainty, you'll worship control. If your greatest fear is insignificance, you'll worship influence and gaining power. If your greatest fear is loneliness, you'll end up worshiping relationships. Tragically, you'll end up suffocating those relationships and lose them anyway. If your greatest fear is failure, you'll worship achievement and accomplishment. If your greatest fear is suffering and persecution, you'll worship comfort. You'll worship comfort. And let me say, that speaks directly to what they were facing. So either our fears lead us astray to worship other stuff or our fears can drive us to God because we realize that without Him we finished. Without Him, life is not even worth living. So if I uproot the idol, if you uproot, let me say this again. <laughs> I'm going to sound like Zuma now. Listen closely. If you uproot the idol and don't plant the love of Christ the idol will grow back again real freedom begins when you realize what idols we worship Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8 says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs <laughs> That's too good to just say once. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace 
that could be theirs. What's he saying? That our idols are grace robbers. And when we go to these other things, we leave not only unfulfilled, we leave unrescued. All right, chapter 12. I hope I'm still tracking. Here we go. Right, chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, let me say this. Uh, I already said I'm not going to go word for word through it, you know, line by line through everything. I'm going to touch certain things. Life is a race, and the truth is it's more like a marathon than a sprint. Yeah. Right? Races can be of different lengths. But marathons require exceptional endurance, mental fortitude, and physical fitness <laughs> because, of it, because of its extended length. Do we have any runners in the house? Oh, one guy, is that it? Oh my Lord, I'm not going to tease him, all right. I just want to say though, uh, the Bible says, you know, that uh, there's something wrong, you know, that those that run are wicked, basically, the scripture says, when, you know, they run and nobody pursues them, but okay. <laughs> But we leave that alone. We leave. I, I admire you, brother. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews assists us in making sense of our own personal race by explaining three features of the spiritual marathon. Number one, the origin of the marathon. The origin of the marathon. The New Testament offers a variety of metaphors for the spiritual life, for spiritual progress. Physical birth, soldiers, sheep, branches, gardens, amongst other things. They serve to keep the Christian moving along in progress in your Christian life. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 from the Voice Bible, as this is a loose translation, uh, not... not not as bad as the message is a paraphrase, um, but it's, you know, it, it, it gives you thought for thought kind of translation, like the New Living Translation and others. It says, so let's push on forward. Let's push on forward a more perfect understanding, a more, and move, sorry, and move beyond just the basic teachings of the Anointed One. There's no reason to rehash the fundamentals. So, uh, in verse 1, the author begins with the image of a race and offers two means of inspiration. Number one, he says, he inspires us, number one, if you've got a, a Bible, this is beautiful, by encouraging us in verse 1. He says, therefore, we also, since we surround by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let's run. He's encouraging us to run, encouraging them. Now, I, was, I don't know about you, but I was taught that when it says to put away that sin, that it spoke about a particular sin. 
you know, like gambling or lust or whatever. I may have even taught it that way until I studied for this message. When you understand that the context is persecution, the sin he's talking about is to leave Jesus, go back. Because of your persecution. That's the sin he's talking about. Giving up on your faith because of persecution and because of trials. To go back from grace and go back to law. To go from gospel liberty back to Jewish legalism. So the author says, listen up. This is the climax of my entire message. And he shocks the audience by a stirring revelation. <laughs> Encouragement. Come on, guys. Let's run. Okay? Let's keep going. Secondly, he says, so we've got encouragement, but then he also uses enablement. Encouragement and enablement. Slide 15, verses 2 and 3. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Hebrews 12, 2 and 12, 3 uses the same phrase, endured. Endured hostility and endured the cross. And that word comes from two Greek words meaning Hupo or hypo meno. Hupo means under and meno means remain. And basically what it means to remain under in a place. No matter the pain, no, ma no matter the persecution, no matter whatever comes along, it speaks of a rugged durability and a resilience to stand and stay the course. Amen. Even when things get tough. Yes. Yes. So standing at the marathon. And at the end of the marathon. Is the Lord Jesus at the finish line. Yes. And if we focus on him. He enables us to finish this marathon. Let me say that no one. No one. Ever was saved. Without looking at Jesus. Uh, how was people saved in the Old Testament? <laughs> um, let me give you an example. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Unto who? Unto us. This is written 700 years before Christ is even born. And they look forward to the work of the cross. Like you and I look back 2,000 years later. Look back at the work of the cross. It was always the cross. Always about Jesus. Right? Isaiah 45, 22. Looking, talking about looking. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. In fact, the Christian life not only begins with a look, it ends with a look. Uh, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, 
now we are children, now are we the children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So Jesus successfully, successfully ran the race. You and I got to keep that example because He kept His eye on the Father. And perhaps the term in Hebrews, perhaps the better word is not perfecter, maybe it's not finisher, but perfecter. Jesus Christ is and will always remain the goal. He's the perfecter of your faith and of mine. Hallelujah, He is. So let's look at verse uh, 4 through 13, okay? It says, now, no chastening. <laughs> that word chastening is discipline. Chastening seems to be joyous for the present, but painful. Afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So we've got the origins of the marathon, but then we've got the obstacles of the marathon. Slide 19. Are we still? I hope I'm still on track. Am I doing good? Okay. Um, obstacles? That seems to be stuck. All right. It seems like we are. Um, lady? Sorry, are we... Oh, is that out? Okay. We'll keep going. Let me, let me say something. You come to a meeting like this, and you got sound glitching, you got stuff that don't work. You know what's happening? You're having resistance and obstacles from the enemy of your soul. It's a simple thing. Okay, so dealing with the obstacle of the marathon, this sin, as I mentioned, is not just any kind of sin. It is the sin of turning away from Jesus, going back to the old life, giving up. Three things to consider. Is this, has this, has this come right? Aha! Aha, no chastening. There we go. All right. So dealing with chastening, he's talking about fathers disciplining their sons, their kids. He says, first, consider the word, the big word in, in, in that text. Consider, number one, firstly, that chastening is a forgotten truth. A forgotten truth. Look at verses 4 to 6. Have you not yet resisted? You have not yet resisted the, to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten, he calls this an exhortation. <laughs> You've forgotten the exhortation to, uh, which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Yeah and scourges every son 
he receives. That's not fun when you're being disciplined. <laughs> but it is God's method. Okay. Proverbs 3. Are we there? Right. Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Now, perhaps the biblical truth, this biblical truth, has probably been one of the most neglected in preaching. When was the last time you heard a sermon on being disciplined? The chastening of the Lord. Okay? And so, in, uh, there we go, Second Samuel 7, verse 14, the New King James Version, listen to this. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with blows and with the blows of the sons of men. Revelation 3.19, it just goes on. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. What's interesting here is that they're going through persecution and suffering and he calls it discipline. <laughs> All right. Let's look at verse uh, 5 and 6 again of uh, Hebrews 12. And it says, Have and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked, rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. So God's love and chastening is for those he loves and receives. <laughs> There's one sister that's happy. Okay. So first we have to consider the chastening is a forgotten truth. Number two, secondly, we've got to recognize it's a family truth. Family truth. Verse 7 through 10. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Sounds like family to me. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? Family truth. But if you are without chastening, of which uh, we all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Uh, I'm not trying to be crude, but the King James uses the word bastard. Fatherless. If you haven't endured chastening. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Uh, okay, so what he does here basically is that he compares human fathers to the spiritual father, the Lord right our heavenly father and he's saying if you were in subjection to your natural father how much more him slide 24 i believe it is it says firstly we recognize it was a forgotten truth secondly it's a family truth but thirdly it's a fruitful truth fruitful truth look at verse 
11. Is it there? Yep. Now, no chastening seems to be joyous at or for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop reading there. So, let me just say this. Chastening is maybe like uh, God being a personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> and a trainer will put you through the paces right oh lord jesus okay it put you through the paces and uh when he trains you you get stronger you get fitter right uh your muscles become stronger blood flow goes off circulation increases a good trainer will delight in making you stronger even if you suffer okay so um little illustration uh, I brought some kettlebells uh, Ryan would you bring that up here and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna put Pastor Bevan come bring it up here bro right here yeah yeah we're gonna because he works out and posts all these workout videos we're gonna put him to the test Pastor Bevan come up here so let me let me explain so when you do an exercise Right? When you do an exercise, blood eventually goes to that muscle. The more you do it, uh, in training, in the training world, they call it a pump. Right? Your muscle gets filled with blood. It gets thick, bigger, fuller, and of course it's what creates the pain the next day. Right? But uh, Pastor Bevan, if you could grab those, those are 10 kilograms each, and that should be easy for him. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to do side laterals, out to the side, as, 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 as many as you can, right? And I'm going to be the coach helping you. One, come on. Two, count with. Three, come on. Strict. Get strict. Come on. Come on. Nine. Keep going. Ten. Come on, Pastor Bevan. Ten. Keep going. Ten. Let's go. Ten. Up. Ten. Come on. Ten. Come on. Ten. Come on. Ten. Oh, how much more? Ten. Two more. Two more. Oh. There you go. Just, just hang on. I usually do a seven, eh? <laughs> what? When he came to the place he couldn't do anymore. This is grace. The Father comes and takes, Jesus takes it from you. Right? And he carries it and he puts it on. So if you're bench pressing and you get stuck on the bench press, the spotter comes and lifts it off okay grace there in the persecution number two I said blood flows to the muscle right now his deltoids are a little bit more pumped than they were when he just walked in and the neck what's the lesson here where the pain is the blood goes. Oh. 
Amen. And uh, th- thanks, Pastor Bevan. Many things increase. And the trainer, the trainer will push him like I did. But could it be, we sang it today. We, we sang, thank you, brother. We sang that song, you know, and we mentioned it, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Could it be when you take this analogy of training and working out, that maybe, you know, we've always interpreted uh, the joy, ha, 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 ha. If I stay joyous, it's going to make me strong. And if I get sad, it saps me of strength. Could it be that God's perspective is like the one we just saw demonstrated? That he's the trainer and the thing that brings him joy. Come on, Bevan. Keep going, Bevan. The thing that gives me joy gives him strength. Just a thought. Just a thought. All right. Let's move on. Okay, so chastening from the Lord is not pleasant, but it's profitable. It's painful, but it yields the fruit of righteousness. When it comes from God, chastening is a seed. (laughs) And the fruit is righteousness. Why righteousness? Why didn't it say the peaceable fruit of love? Why didn't it say the peaceable fruit of long-suffering? Or why righteousness? Because I was taught, like I'm sure you were taught, that righteousness meant just as if you've never sinned. But the deeper I studied grace and understood the gospel, I understood that was only half the explanation. It's not just just like you've never sinned. It also means just like you've always obeyed. Our gospel is beautiful. That's the grace behind righteousness. What's our lesson here? No obstacle can stop the Christian whose eyes are fixed and focused on Jesus. All right. Number two. Uh, Let's, where are we? All right. Ah, I'm gone too far. All right. Uh, there we go. All right. So, so, what we have to understand here is the outcome. The third point is the outcome of the marathon. Believers need to understand something. Rest assured that you're not going to run in vain. Ever. Let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without, no, without which no one will see the Lord. So there's two outcomes here that are revealed for the faithful marathon runner. Firstly, runners are given clarity of direction. Expositors, I hope you enjoy this. Clarity of direction. Despite the unavoidable hindrances, our horizontal duty is to love other people. And pursue peace in, with other relationships. And while some people don't want to make it easy, <laughs> uh, the faithful runner will con- just continue putting himself out there in the quest for peace. Look at verse 15. 
It says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This was actually part of the fifth warning, devaluing the grace of God. Not only do we have a horizontal duty to love others, but here's the vertical to pursue holiness with God. Slide 26. So firstly, there's clarity of direction, verses 14 and 15, and we must have clarity of decisions. Clarity of direction towards man, towards God, and then secondly, clarity of decisions. Look at verse 16 and 17. And it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one, porcel, one morsel of food sold his birthright. For we know that afterwards when he, when, he was, uh, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected when he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau's profane character in selling his birthright shows that he had no regard for the things of God. Why is this important? You will recall he sold his birthright for a bowl of sampan beans, right? Lentils. Esau pandered to his feelings, his desires, his passions, his hunger. He valued his lusts more than he dis and despised his legacy. Quite a thought. He jeopardized his entire future for momentary, because of momentary discomfort. These second generation believers were close to being guilty of the same thing and that's why the writer warns them. Be careful you don't lose the eternal because you become desperate in the present. You become desperate for the comfortable. So we have clarity of decision, clarity of direction, we have clarity of decision, and then lastly, we have a certainty of destination, or certainty of destiny. Verse 27, slide 27, verses 18 to 29, it says, For you have not come, and here's where we get to the heat of the matter, for you have not come to the mountain that have been touched, and burnt with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and to the sound of the trumpets and, of, and, the, and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was it that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. In Exodus chapter, I'll explain this just now, Exodus 19 and 12, he says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be, is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows, not a hand laid on them. <laughs> no person or animal was permitted. Now, 
uh, I couldn't really understand that and I was wondering, okay, what's the big deal? What does this even mean? In my estimation, animals are innocent. They are guilty of sin. Hello? Unless you have a cat. Jokes, jokes. Okay. They're innocent. And God's saying, if an animal touches the foot of this mountain, it must die. And it's innocent. So what happens with you and I who are full of sin? How much, more, how much worse is our fate because of sin? Do you see the law? The law kills. So the writer gives us this exposition in, 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 in Exodus chapter 19, 20, Deuteronomy 4. Uh, the next slide here is an uh, artist's impression. Oh, you can't see that. That's horrible. But, but uh, basically the Im impression is that the people of Israel at the bottom, this mountain was quaking. Earthquakes, rumblings, God speaking, judgment. This was, Sinai wasn't a fun place. Yeah. For the oaks that don't like grace. I had a pastor tell me, yeah, you, you know, you grace preachers, it's, it's just a little too much. And I said to him, I said, Bud, if there's one thing you want a lot of, it's grace. That's the one thing I hope there's too much of. The one thing. Okay. Verse 22 through 29 years um, alright but you've come, to the, you've come to Mount Zion and the city it says you but you not talking to them now they're talking to us well those second generation people but you've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly the church of the firstborn who were registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Hold on, what did the blood of Abel say? The blood of Abel said, I'm innocent, I want justice. What did the blood of Jesus say? I'm innocent, you get grace. So you do not need to, ref do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who speaks on earth, how much more shall we escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Let's not turn away from him who speaks away from, speaks from heaven. For uh, whose voice then shook the earth but now he's, he's promised saying, yet, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven also. Verse 25 through 29. This is the sixth warning in the book of Hebrews. The final one. It's a warning against departing from him who's speaking. Verse 27. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which cannot be shaken. As of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the author tells us that past, in the past, there was shaking on Mount Sinai. But he warns the reader of not just that. He talks about once more 
meaning something prophetic. Yeah. Something coming. Yes. This is, let me say, it sounds terrible, but it's good news for the believer. Yes. You should be scared as hell if you're not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of shaking. Right? Uh, let me read you some scriptures as I, as I bring this thing to a close. Quite a few scriptures here. Isaiah 13, the amplified classic edition. It says, therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth shall be shaken out of its place at wrath, at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Please understand this is not just a part of end time Bible prophecy. It's not uh, figurative, symbolic, allegorical language. This is literal. He's saying, I'm going to shake this thing. Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and crumble away, and the sky shall be rolled together like a scroll, and all their hosts, the stars and the planets, shall drop like faded leaves from the vine and like a withered fig from the fig tree. Incredible. Isaiah 67, good news translation. The Lord says, I'm making a new earth and a new heaven. The events, the, the events of the past will be completely forgotten. There's shaking coming, guys. There's shaking coming. Not just shaking, it's shake and bake. There's fire too. Second <laughs> Peter 3, verse 10 to 13. Is that on the screen? Yep. But the Lord of hosts, but, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth also and the, and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? While you are waiting for the desire, for the desiring of the coming of the day of the Lord, the day of God, in which the heavens will be destroyed by fire and the elements will be consumed in intense heat. Now look at our last point and how it confirms it in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. Amen. The righteous will dwell there. Revelation chapter 6, 12 to 14. And I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The, the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth. As figs, drop, drop, and f as figs drop from a fig tree then shaken by a strong wind, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Talking about final judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and in him, 
were seated upon it and, and him who was seated upon it from whose presence, presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them for this heaven and earth are passing away. Revelation 21, almost done. Talking about a new heaven, new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautiful dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain my thing is telling me my time is up here I heard you bud and so if, the question here is as I close how do we if you're not saved how do you escape this how do you escape this you have to go back you have to go back to verses 18 through 21 and verses 20 through 22 to 24. Because you've got to go back to those two mountains. You've got to choose one of those two mountains. Either you're going to go back to the law and we know what's waiting for us there. Or you're going to come to the place of grace. You're going to come to Zion where Jesus is that is that's our options so therefore since we are receiving a kingdom we are receiving we didn't work for it we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us have grace keyword let us have grace by which we may serve God implication if you don't have grace you can't serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear so look at that again therefore since receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear why for our God is a consuming fire if you don't come to Zion if you don't come to Jesus you face consuming fire would you bow your head please I know this was heavy this is not you gotta blame Pastor Bevan. <laughs> but let me deal with something. I want to do two things in the time that I have left. 
I don't know how many people here are struggling. I don't know what it is you, you may be feeling like your circumstance in life has been your persecution. And you're sitting here tonight, and we don't want to embarrass you, this is family. This is family. But you were on the verge of giving up. You felt like I'm throwing in the towel because this just hurts too much. I wish I had the liberty to tell you some of the stuff that I've had to deal with over the last two and a half years. But when I wanted to give up, I had to look at two kids who are relying on me. And dad doesn't get to give up. There's no such luxury. You stand and fight. You stand and live. You stand and breathe and fight another day. Because if you do give up one day, your son, your daughter will say, well, dad took an easy way out. Maybe when I go through hard times, I'll take an easy way out. That thought was inconceivable for me. And I don't know what it is you may be going through, but you may feel, I'm done. I'm done. If that's you and you've been feeling persecuted, I want to pray over you. There's some things you're just going to have to learn to endure, like a good soldier. But we will be derelict in our duty if we don't pray. There are certain storms that just need to be commanded away. If that is you and you've been going through stuff, challenges, storms, persecution, unfair treatment, whatever it may be, and you want prayer, would you quickly put up your hand? This is safe. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a bunch of people. Let's do this. Before we do, we speak to salvation.